thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. Stripping down science. The Naked Scientists. Hello and welcome to this week's Naked Scientists with me, Chris Smith, and with Helen Scales. Hi, Helen. Hi, Chris. Now, this week, how scientists have programmed yeast cells to turn green when they sniff out explosives. There's also good news on how conservationists are turning turtle numbers around and also a weather forecast that's quite literally out of this world because scientists have worked out what the climate's like on a planet that's 63 light years away. How they've done it, coming up shortly. Helen. And also this week, would you eat your lunch off a lavatory seat? We'll be testing out the claim that there are more bugs on a kitchen table than there are on a bog seat. But hang on and we'll be revealing the results of our tests later on in the show. Plus, we're delving into the world of microbiology with virology Dr. Tim Reggett, fungus specialist Dr. Ali Ashby, and bacteriologist Dr. Gillian Fraser, who will be explaining the science of viruses, fungi, and bacteria. And if you're in the mood to win something, the two great prizes up for grabs this week. We've got a copy of a brand new book, which is called The Periodic Table Elements with Style, which is a humorous rundown on some of the most exciting aspects of the chemicals that make up our world. I'll give you a little taster of that later. And there's a copy of my book, which is Naked Science. It's stuffed full of fun and funky science stories like the ones that you hear here on The Naked Scientist. And to win either of those two books, or possibly both, can you tell us how many E. coli bacteria would fit on the head of a pin? The person with the answer closest to what we think is the right answer is going to win. Sorting out the sparks from the quarks. The Naked Scientists. For more information, get online at nakedscientists.com. Now, an interesting story that's come out this week is that scientists at Temple University, which is in Philadelphia, have managed to modify yeast cells. Those are the cells that we use to make beer, in fact, and they've turned them into a sort of bioterror weapon detection system. And it's very clever because they've given them the ability to smell or have a nose similar to a human or a, a rat nose. And what they've done is to borrow from a human or a rat nose what we call a receptor or a docking station which recognises chemicals. So in your nose you have these receptors at the top of the nose and when you smell a, a chemical which goes up your nose, the chemical locks onto this receptor and this then tells the brain that this particular smell is present. So what this group of researchers led by Danny Danasekran have done is to borrow the gene that makes that docking station and add it to some yeast cells so they then put that particular receptor or docking station on the surface of the yeast and then they've linked it to a green-coloured gene inside the yeast cell. So when the yeast smells the smell that's been programmed to pick up on, then the whole cell turns bright green. In fact, they've used GFP, which is a green gene from jellyfish, to do that. Now, the gene that they've used at the moment is a gene that makes the cells recognise something called DNT, which is a breakdown product of TNT trinitrotoluene, that's the stuff that make, makes up an explosive. So what they want to do with this is to use it as a kind of very compact 
bioterror weapon detector. So in other words, if anyone's got some explosives, you just have to put some of these cultured yeast cells near it, and if they begin to glow bright green, which they'll do within a very short space of time, it tells them that this kind of explosive must be nearby, and therefore to look out. And, and why it's good is that you don't just have to detect explosives with it. You could program the yeast cells by varying the docking station on the surface to recognise virtually any smell that exists in the environment. And this means you've got a very sensitive and also a really compact, very, very small way of doing this because man-made devices capable of doing the same thing are massive by comparison. Sounds like explosive stuff indeed. Now I've got uh, good news this week that numbers of endangered sea turtles are on the up in British and French waters. And we think that's thanks to conservation efforts on the other side of the Atlantic. Now that's according to a team of researchers from the University of Exeter here in the UK who've been studying 100 years worth of data on sightings of loggerhead and Kemp Ridley turtles in European waters. Now, most of the marine turtles that visit European shores are born on the other side of the world in North America, Mexico and other parts of the Caribbean. And after hatching, the baby turtles take up to four years to swim all the way across the Atlantic. And scientists are still not really sure why they bother coming all that way. But marine turtles are in a pretty bad way globally for all sorts of reasons. For a long time, they've been accidentally caught in fishing nets. And also turtle eggs used to be harvested in huge numbers from beaches in the Caribbean for people to eat. But as this latest study seems to suggest, the conservation programmes that started off towards the end of the 20th century are already starting to pay off. For example, egg collecting doesn't happen anymore, and the shrimp trawlers that trawl up and down the Gulf of Mexico have begun to use special devices that either stop turtles from getting into the nets in the first place, or they let them escape unharmed. And uh, there's another recent study which looked at glowing light sticks that you might usually see on Guy Fawkes Night here in the UK, or Halloween, probably in the US. Um, and these are used in open ocean longline fisheries to attract tuna and swordfish. But it seems these lights also attract turtles, which might be why so many of them are getting tangled and hooked up on longlines. But the good news is that um, by adjusting the colour and the intensity of these lights, um, it might make them less attractive to turtles while still being effective at attracting the big fish. But um, all these turtle conservation methods could already help to explain why we're seeing more and more turtles in the UK. And 30 years ago, we never saw them at all. I didn't even know we did. I've never seen a turtle myself. Self, um, unfortunately, but I didn't even know that they were native to our water. That's right. Well, they are. I mean, I have never seen one in the UK, but apparently, especially off down in Cornwall and in the summer times, if you're out at sea, you might well see one swimming around. So it's fantastic. And it really is for once a good news conservation story. Well, here's something that's totally out of this world, because this week researchers have managed to come up with a, a weather forecast for a planet that's not even in our own solar system. This is Heather Knutson, who works at Harvard University over on the east coast of the US. And what she's done is, together with her colleagues, they've used NASA's Spitzer Space Telescope to focus it on a distant star. It's about 63 light years away, and it's got a very catchy name. It's HD 189733, and it's got a planet orbiting it, which is about the size of Jupiter in our solar system. Now, the difference between the Jupiter there and the Jupiter here is that the Jupiter around that distant star is very, very close into the star. It takes 12 years for Jupiter in our solar system to whiz around one complete lap of our solar system. But in this distant solar system, the Jupiter goes around in just two days, so it's right on top of the star. And because it's so close to the star, it's become what's called tidally locked, which is just like our moon showing us just one face all the time, so it has a light side and a dark side. This distant planet does the same thing. And what the researchers wanted to know is... If you've got a planet which has got one side roasting up against the star and the other side dark and pointing to outer space, how hot's the hot side and how dark's the dark side? So they've watched this 
planet using the space telescope as it goes round this distant star and they've watched it as it eclipses the star and then as it goes round the side and round the back of the star and they've used the simple sort of reasoning that the hotter something is the brighter it'll be and using that method they've calculated that the side facing the star is about 1200 kelvins and that's sizzlingly hot but that the dark side, which is furthest from the star and pointing at a cold, dark space, is also roasting hot. It's 900 Kelvin, so 900, that's about 700 degrees C, so very, very warm indeed. And the reason that, that it does that, they've now worked out, is that the heat from the star creates this w- massive wind system on the surface of the planet, so there's huge amounts of wind whipping all the heat from the hot side round to the dark side, so they can see this hot spot being blown downwind by these very strong winds. And this is quite literally the first weather forecast we've ever had, or the first climate assessment for a planet that's not even in our own solar system. It makes you kind of worry that we don't know what the weather's going to be like tomorrow, really, and yet we can do this on the other side of the solar system. Fantastic stuff. Well, back to Earth just quickly. Um, For news this week that scientists have announced plans for a wonderfully ambitious project. They're setting up, they're setting out to create a huge online Noah's Ark. The web-based encyclopedia will hold huge amounts of detailed information about the world's 1.8 million known species of wild creatures and the most important thing about it is that it will be free for everybody to use now the idea of cataloguing life on earth has been around for a while but it's only recently that it's becoming possible to do so because of the great advances we're seeing in web technology so that now millions of pieces of information can be stored accessed and searched online and in fact the plans for the encyclopedia of life will take about 10 years to build and the first thing they're going to do is send out software programs called bots out onto the internet to gather up information that's already out there, but all scattered around the internet and in different places. They're going to bring it together, get experts to check it, and add in anything else they think might be missing. So there's really going to be a huge amount of information at our fingertips. For example, the Natural History Museum is going to open up its million books and quarter of a million research papers to be part of this project. But how are they sorting the wheat from the chaff, Helen? Because you know, this is a bit Wikipedia, isn't it? We've got lots and lots of stuff being piled into from lots of different sources and there's I think a lot the of rubbish is, as well as Yeah, that's, I think that's the key to this, that really is, there's so much out there, but how can you be sure information is, is reliable? And it's because they're using experts, teams of experts, specialists on all these different species to check the information. It won't be open like Wikipedia, it won't, we won't be adding in ourselves, we'll just be using the information. So I think we can really be sure that the stuff is going to be, be trustworthy. And, and what do they think the major advantage of, of this is over what we've got at the moment? Well, it's just, it's going to be in one place we can go to one place if we want to find out anything about any species in the world you know for for non-experts like ourselves and for you know for study as well it's going to be a really powerful resource because it's all in one place it's not you'd have to go trawling around trying to find information but um and we can add to it as well we'll get through 1.8 million eventually and then all the other species hundreds of millions out there we still haven't discovered can be added on so from aardvark to zebras alligators to zebras we'll be able to find out anything we want about the creatures we share the planet with including creatures which have got names beginning with z which um if you'd asked me to just name to I would have probably come up with zebra but I probably wouldn't have thought of I just said zebra the... and zebu I think zebu isn't I wouldn't have thought is... of the other one you said zebu is a kind of cattle Thanks, Helen. With The Naked Scientist, Dr Chris and Dr Helen, this week we're going to be exploring the microbiological world and coming up shortly we'll be talking with Dr Tim Reggett from Adam Brooks Hospital about viruses and how they can have you locked to a loo seat. Noroviruses are responsible for people ending up with nasty explosive outbreaks of what most people just call gut rot. 
but how do they get around? What's their life cycle? How infectious are they? What sort of a threat are they? How can we deal with them? So he's coming on shortly to talk about that. We'll also be investigating the claim that the kitchen table is probably more bug-ridden and bad for you than the bog seat. Is that true or is it an urban legend? Well, we've put it to the test and we've swabbed a toilet seat and we've swabbed a kitchen table and we'll be finding out later with Cambridge University's Gillian Fraser and Ben Valsler, who's gone out to find out the answer. And also from Cambridge University, Ali Ashby is waiting in the wings. She's going to be talking about fungi, not just the things that hang off of trees, but maybe the things that also can give you marmite and other tasty things to eat like corn. The Naked Scientist podcast, powered by UK Fast, the UK's best hosting provider, on the web at ukfast.net. Now, also this week, uh, scientists in the US recently announced they've come up with the world's smallest pair of scales. And this is amazing. Get this. They're even capable of measuring the weight of a single bacterium. And to tell us how it actually works and how they've done that, from the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, here's Scott Manalis. Hi, Scott. Hello, Chris. Thank you for joining us on The Naked Scientist. What was the point of doing this? Well, we wanted to have a very sensitive way to weigh biomolecules and cells underwater for biosensors and application to biology and diagnostics. So... How does it actually work, and why can't we already do that? Well, okay, what the scale consists of is a tiny piece of silicon in the shape of a cantilever. So imagine walking out on a springy diving board, and you'll be bouncing up and down at some frequency. And as soon as you jump off that diving board, it'll be vibrating much quicker. And the difference in frequency between when you were on it and when you were off it corresponds to the mass. But now imagine you want to do that same thing underwater all the water would impede the vibration of the diving board. So what we have done is put the water actually inside of the diving board and flow through all the objects that we want away on the inside of it. And on the outside is a vacuum, so it can vibrate very efficiently. So the water's passing through a very tiny tube embedded inside that, that diving board and, and carrying with it the thing that you want to actually weigh as it exactly, goes through. Exactly. Picture the tube in the shape of a U, so the water flows all the way out to the end and then back out to the base again. And, and then, for instance, a cell would pass through that U type of tube. So what sorts of things, apart from, from bacteria, but what sorts of things could you weigh with this, and, and what sorts of applications would you see it having? Well, essentially, we could weigh anything that could fit inside that tube uh, and down to a detection limit that's about equal to a femtogram, so 10 to the minus 15th of a gram. And we envision applications for being able to identify specific cells say for diagnostics uh, for HIV, a very important one is to be able to count CD4 cells. And we believe this has the potential to do this, although we have a lot of uh, additional steps we must solve in the lab to be able to get there. How do you know that there's only one cell going through this at a time? How do you account for the fact that, say, cells might stick together or form a clump and that would obviously weigh more than just a single cell? Yeah, so there's two things we have to do. One is we make the concentration such that the cells are dilute enough that the probability that two are in the channel at the same time is unlikely. But the clumping is always a problem that one must think about, and that has to be addressed by adjusting the right types of buffer conditions of salt solution uh, to make sure that they don't do that. But that takes some thought beforehand to know how to do that. Now, say you've got a combination of bacteria, because obviously the human body's absolutely heaving with bacteria, and not all of them are bad for us. So how could you say, if you were looking for just nasty bacteria, how could you make sure you didn't get fooled into diagnosing someone with an infection caused by good ones? Yes, that is the key question. And so, in fact, when we weigh these bacteria, just their mass alone, it would be very difficult to know what type of bacteria it is. So we must, be, we must do more than just weigh. And there are two possibilities, or there's actually a, a few possibilities. One is that you could actually make the interior walls of that U-tube 
you can make them sticky with certain types of antibodies that are specific to the types of bacteria that you want to see, and they will stick to the tubes. You could also use nanoparticles that are functionalized with uh, antibodies that are specific for these bacteria. And then the, the nanoparticles will make certain types of bacteria heavier than the rest. And then finally, we can also measure the mass density of these cells. And this may be a way to differentiate different types of bacteria or perhaps even the viability of the bacteria. But this is something that we, we must explore. Now, how big is the little tube that runs around the outside in the U-shape, around the edge of that diving board, like uh, vibrating seesaw you described? Well, so right now, the way we make it is it's about a few hundred microns long, uh, so maybe about three or four times the width of a hair. And the thickness is about between, depending on our devices, three to ten microns. So the thickest one we have is about the thickness of a white blood cell. But it's still significantly bigger than, say, a bacterium, isn't it? So will your machine be fooled if the bacteria goes around the corner and ends up further towards the outside edge of the tube than towards the inner edge of the tube, would, would that not cause quite a considerable error in your measurements? Yes, yes, absolutely. That would cause an error. But the error is very small because the tube, uh, or actually the diving board, is, again, several hundred microns long, but the width of the tube is about less than 10. So the error in that is actually very small and turns out to not be significant. And finally, Scott, how much does E. coli weigh, then, per bacterial cell? That's a, yeah, so it weighs 100 femtograms, um, which another way to think about it is it weighs the weight of about a, a gold particle that's a few hundred nanometers uh, in size. So how many zeros after the decimal point before you get to some numbers for the E. coli weight then? Well, for in grams, you would have to have 13 zeros, so point zero zero all the way out with 13. So to 10 to the minus 13th uh, gram would be the weight of an E. coli. Thanks for joining us, Scott. Thank you, Chris, for inviting me. That's uh, Scott Manalis, who's from the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, with quite possibly the world's smallest pair of scales. And in fact, incidentally, Helen, what part of a fish weighs the most? What part of a fish weighs the most? The scales, of course. Oh. <laughs> Sorry. OK, well, maybe uh, that uh, gave you a few hints on what might be the answer to our teaser question this week, which is how many E. coli bacteria fit on the head of a pin? And remember, we've also got Dr Tim Reggett in the wings waiting to answer your questions all about viruses and what makes us ill. But once again, it's time to check in with our science siblings in the States. And this week, Bob and Chelsea are also talking microorganisms with a bacterial flavour to this week's science update. This week for the Naked Scientists, we're going to get up close and personal with bacteria. In fact, you're up close and personal with bacteria all the time, so it's important for scientists to figure out just how we interact with them. I'm going to talk about how bacteria could help prevent asthma. But first, Chelsea's here to tell us about your first line of defense against harmful bacteria, skin. If the common staph bacterium could easily get through your skin, you'd wake up every day with disgusting sores. Now new research identifies a key agent in repelling this menace. Donald Leung's team at the National Jewish Medical and Research Center in Denver found that skin cells make a protein called human beta defensin 3 as soon as they notice harmful bacteria. The protein breaks down the bacteria's membranes, killing them. Then the skin cells encase and digest the bacteria's remains. It literally happens in minutes. And it's probably the reason why most normal people do not have uh, problems with bacterial infection, even though our environment is teeming with bacteria. Leung says a deficiency in beta defensin 3 could help explain infection-prone skin and open a new direction for antibiotic drug development. Thanks, Chelsea. 
A common stomach infection called Helicobacter pylori may protect against childhood asthma and allergies. This according to a new study led by microbiologist Martin Blazer, chair of the New York University Department of Medicine. Blazer says that Helicobacter infections have been almost universal in humans for thousands of years, but in the 20th century, the infections started disappearing, probably because of the widespread use of antibiotics. So as a result, we now have people... I think for the first time in human history, adults who either have the organism or don't, and so we can measure the consequences. The bug has already been shown to have both costs and benefits to the gastrointestinal tract. Now, Blazer's team has analyzed the medical records of about 8,000 people and found that those with helicobacter infections are 40% less likely to ever have had childhood asthma or allergies. As to why, Blazer suspects that a chronic helicobacter infection keeps the immune system occupied, reducing the likelihood that it'll go haywire over pollen or cold air. This is a variation of the so-called hygiene hypothesis, that by eliminating germs with our arsenal of disinfectants, we're leaving our immune systems with nothing to do, so they attack the wrong things. But Blazer suspects that the germs in our bodies matter a lot more than those on our kitchen counters. When a parent takes their child to have their ear infections treated, I think that one of the hidden consequences of the antibiotic use is that it's having an effect on bacteria all over the body, including in some kids eliminating helicobacter. So it is possible that every time a child gets a course of antibiotics for any reason, they are marginally increasing their risk of asthma. The next step is to find out if people who take more antibiotics during their childhood are more likely to develop asthma or allergies than others. Thanks, Bob. Next time we'll be back with more stories sure to please you and your resident bacteria. Until then, I'm Chelsea Wald. And I'm Bob Hershon for AAAS, the Science Society. Back to you, Naked Scientists. Thanks, guys. And remember, we'll have more from Bob and Chelsea next week. But if you can't wait till then and you want to find out some more, have a look at their website. That's www.triplas.com, I think. Is that right? Yes. The AAA, their web, uh, science the science update website. Yeah. yeah, there you go. I've got an email here from Matt who says, uh, Hi, Dr. Chris. On last week's show, you and Phil were discussing geostationary satellites and you wondered aloud whether satellites are insured, specifically against damage from anti-satellite measures. Satellites are insured, and especially for launch, because you'd be amazed at the number of satellites that fail to deploy properly. With a satellite, there's so little room for error at launch and entering orbit. So uh, when it's a claim, it tends to be an incredibly large one. When the launch, unless the launch goes perfectly, it's a total write-off. Now, in orbit, satellites are also insured, but acts of war are generally excluded. So if China shoots down your bird, you're probably out of luck, because that's referring to the fact that the Chinese tested one of their uh, kind of... It's almost like a Star Wars weapon, wasn't it? They destroyed an old satellite of their own not so long ago, and it sparked a little bit of contention and controversy worldwide. Doesn't sound good to me, but all sorts of things clanging around in our atmosphere, I Well, thank you for that, Matt. Anyway, that was very informative. So, yes, satellites are, exp- are insured, and it's damn expensive. Wonderful. I've got an email just coming here from Peter. He says, I've read your articles on sun cream, but have a further question. Do sun creams reduce the energy of each transmitted photon, thereby taking them below the threshold that could damage your DNA? Or do they merely reduce the number of transmitted, uh, the number that are transmitted through the cream? Yeah, the, the way this works, Peter, is you have uh, a chemical in the sun cream, which when ultraviolet, which is the component of sunlight, which we know is linked to skin cancer because it damages DNA, that chemical in the sun cream in interacts and soaks up the ultraviolet rays and it re-radiates them as a more harm, harm, less harmful form of radiation. So in the same way as, uh, say, a strip light works, actually, or a TV screen, you have this phosphor on the front of the screen. When a high-energy beam hits the phosphor, it 
it activates some of the atoms and it kicks some of the electrons around those atoms up to a higher energy state. They then fall down again to their original energy state and they spit out some radiation, which is visible light. Now, the same thing happens with the sun cream, that the ultraviolet hits it and it excites the chemicals that's in there and when those chemicals de-excite themselves, they give out energy at a different part of the electromagnetic or light spectrum, in a part of the spectrum that's not viewed to be harmful. So that much safer. Actually, it's probably heat, so that's why you sort of fry when you put this skin on, uh, skin cream on. But some people have said that um, we don't know for sure that all sun creams measure up. So you have to be careful to make sure you get one that's actually been properly tested to make sure that it genuinely does do what it says on the tin. I hope that answers your question, Peter. Now, it is The Naked Scientist with Dr Chris and Dr Helen. In a second, we'll be talking with Dr Tim Reggett about noroviruses, these tiny particles that are the bane of the lives of people who run cruise ships and things like that because they cause awful outbreaks of diarrhoea and vomiting. They're also a major problem in hospitals. Also, we'll be swabbing loose seats and kitchen surfaces to find out what's got more bugs on it. And also, Ali Ashby's here to talk about the microscopic world of fungi. The Naked Scientists, supported by the Wellcome Trust. It is The Naked Scientist with Dr Chris and Dr Helen and they were talking about the world of microbiology this week and first up, on the blocks, uh, I could say on the toilet seat perhaps, Tim Reggett. Hi Tim. Hi Chris. Thank you for coming in. Uh, Tim's a consultant virologist at Addenbrooke's Hospital and this must be a major problem for you. It certainly is. I mean, Every year we get large outbreaks of diarrhoea and vomiting in hospitals throughout England and some years we have more, some years we have less and that's largely to do with is there a new strain going around, as they say, or not. So what actually is norovirus and why is it such a problem? Well, norovirus is a a small RNA virus which uh, originated, was first discovered in a town called Norwalk in um, Washington State. So nothing to do with Norway, then? (laughs) No, or norolorovirus, no. No, Or Sarah Black. (laughs) Yes, indeed. No, she's completely blameless. Um, But this virus uh, was called Norwalk after, uh, Norwalk virus originally, and now known as norovirus officially. And um, it's really very common in the community. So how does it actually spread from one person to the next? Does it come to us from animals? What sorts of, of problems does it cause? The, the biggest problem with norovirus is it causes projectile vomiting. And by you, I don't have to tell you any more about that, and many of you have probably experienced it too. I certainly have. And So you have no warning that you're going to be sick at all. So someone's... Uh, and is sick... They don't know they're going to do it, and so wherever they are, if it's a hospital ward, if it's a school, if it's a cruise ship, that's it. That means their whole environment around them for about 10 or so, 20 feet, is contaminated, and all you can do then is to try and cope with that, de- that contamination. And is it just on surfaces then, Tim, or is the air literally floating littered with these tiny viral particles so anyone sort of standing in that blast zone could yeah. breathe it in? Yes, the air is contaminated with small uh, bounce backs and, and particles, uh, but the most important important problem is the fact that it gets into carpets and curtains and all that kind of thing so that this is one of the reasons why we don't like a lot of carpets and curtains in hospitals they're very difficult to decontaminate you literally have to take them all down remove them all clean them and and put them back how long does this actual particle hang around in the environment well, it, in the air for very short periods of time, so it, it settles down into the the, the carpet and the, um, the 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 walls and that kind of thing. But then, once it stays on the on the ground in the carpets, in the curtains, uh, on the walls, it will stay there for a long time. Which is why you simply have to remove it. And so, so that's the only way to clean it up. Yes. 
So could you just talk us through what would be the sort of scenario for you're running a cruise mm. and lots of people go on your boat. They all join at Portsmouth and mm. they're very excited about their holiday. What happens next? Well, the interesting thing about cruises is they're ideal culture vessels for viruses because, you know, you but, can't... But I couldn't let you get away with that pun. <laughs> because you have, um, you have a new lot of humans coming in every week or two weeks uh, and they, one group gets it, decontam- it contaminates the area, next group comes. It's absolutely fantastic. Uh, so, basically, what was your question? Well, what I was saying was, you know, the, the, what's the sort of time course that you are you going to see? Boat set sail right, two okay, days gotcha. out of port. Suddenly, people begin to get sick and bad. Well, first of all, you need someone who's incubating the infection. They will come on board. They will be sick in a public area, and then whoever's in that area will be contaminated. Not only do you have the original area of the ship that's contaminated, if it's a public space, and that's going to stay an area where people can pick up infection for many days, but equally then, those people who are exposed about a day or so later will then go out, and if they're in a public space, then they're going to... It's just amplifying the whole time. So why aren't we all having this all the time? If it's as infectious as that and as easy to catch as that and as nasty as that, why aren't we all continuously having this? Well, you know, Chris, we, we probably, a lot of people listening will have had this in the last year or two. I've had it just in December. Um, I've had it knowingly twice in my life. And I think if you talk to people, they're, they're, they're going to know of a hospital ward or a, or a school outbreak or whatever. I think there is quite a bit there in the community, in households, as well as in hospitals. And one thing I do want to say is people always say, oh, well, you know, the hospital should clean, blah, blah. But in fact, it's very difficult. Once it gets into a ward, the only thing you can do is batten down the hatches, restrict access and try and remove symptomatic patients from asymptomatic patients uh, and then clean very carefully afterwards. But this is happening in, in households throughout the country all the time. So if someone, if I brought this home, mm. would my family then most likely catch this? I mean, what could I Absolutely. do if I, if I got, got ill? How could I make sure the rest of my family didn't catch it if it's, that, if it's that easy to catch? Well, it's the old adage of hand washing largely. A lot of infections are spread by hands. But all you can do if you are having diarrhoea and vomiting is to try and use, um, I mean, if you've got the luxury of a separate toilet, or be very careful how you, how you clean the toilet, particularly the lavatory seat, as we might hear about later, uh, and generally try to decontaminate the environment and, and just try and keep other family members away from you if you can. It's easier said than done, Chris, and usually it's not possible. And even if you're very careful, you'll often find that a whole family will go down with this thing. And once you've had it, are you then immune... Or are there lots of different types of it, or does it change so there, that other people can catch it? There are two problems here. One is, once you've had it, you're only immune for a few months. But equally, the virus, like influenza virus, is very clever. The RNA mutates so that every year or two, a brand new virus will emerge that no one is immune to. So this virus has got it sussed. It will make sure that it's got a lifespan, you know, forever, mutating slightly, infecting a new group of people, it's like influenza. It's very difficult to get rid of unless you have a vaccine, and we don't have a vaccine against norovirus. 
That's Dr Tim Riggett, who's a consultant virologist at Addenbrooke's Hospital in Cambridge. We'll be hearing more from Tim shortly because he's also a member of the Royal College of Pathologists. And every year they go down to the Chelsea Flower Show in London and have a display at Chelsea which is aiming to try and make people aware of why plants are also very important to health and disease and specifically pathology. So Tim's going to tell us a bit more about that in a second. But on the subject of microbiology and things making us ill, Mike's in Molden. He's not making us ill, but he has got a question. Hi, Mike. Hello there. Hi. Um, I used to be a pigman, and many years ago, um, we had a really bad bout of E. coli. We were losing something like about 15, 20% of piglets born. And um, a herbalist actually claimed credit for clearing it up, and he fed in the feed to the adult pigs bramble tips, you know, blackberry bramble tips, the new growing stuff. It was a springish time, and coal dust. Uh, by adding certain amounts of it to their feed. I'm just wondering whether it was pure coincidence or, or was there actually something in those two uh, ingredients, some chemical or something, that, that would have fought E. coli? Well, we're now becoming aware of the fact, and you, you've probably heard there are these products on supermarket shelves which are what we call probiotics. The, you, you actually eat cultures, usually in yoghurt drinks and things, which actually contain live bacteria, and they're said to influence the bugs that live in your intestines. Are you aware of that? Yeah. Right, well, that's a probiotic effect. Well, there's also a parallel effect, which we refer to as prebiotic. And this is where if you eat certain things yourself, the food that you put into you is, of course, the food that the bacteria living inside you want to eat. So the food that you eat can influence the spectrum of bacteria that live in you. And so what scientists are now finding is that, for instance, if you eat a lot of porridge, that's very rich in something called beta-glucans. And this is very good for encouraging the growth of certain types of microorganisms that are said to be good bacteria. They, they contribute to warding off the kinds of illnesses that we're going to be hearing about from Gillian Fraser shortly. So it's possible, and I don't have any evidence to refute or confirm what you've suggested, but it's possible that there might be something, perhaps in the bramble, uh, coal, as far as I know, is not a good thing to eat because it also contains other potentially carcinogenic chemicals, things that can trigger cancer, so I wouldn't eat coal. But uh, certainly in brambles and things, you, you might be influencing the digestive system of the pig and therefore affecting the kinds of bacteria they can carry. Oh, right. There might have been something in it, then. Quick go at the quiz. Yeah, OK. A baby born with jaundice can often be treated by placing it under ultraviolet lights for a short while. Do you think that's science fact or science fiction? Right. I would think fiction. Yeah, you're right, actually. It's blue light, not ultraviolet light, that's used to treat neonatal jaundice. Yeah, Tim Riggett got that wrong. Got he, was, that wrong. He, he got it totally wrong. Yeah. Uh, next question, then. Uh, a blue whale weighs about 50 tonnes, Mike. Do you think that's fact or fiction? Uh, three double-decker buses. Sure, yeah, it's probably about right. Oh, it's actually 100 tonnes. It's a sperm whale that's 50 tonnes, and the blue whales are much, much bigger than that. Sorry about that. Thanks for calling, Mike. It's a great question, though. OK, bye. So Naked Scientists with Dr Chris, Dr Helen. We've heard from Dr Tim Reggett. Coming up shortly, Dr Gillian Fraser will be telling us what lives on your average loose eat. Laying the facts bare, Ooh. the Naked Scientists. Now, this week's kitchen science is not one that you can do at home, and it's hopefully not one that you would want to do at home anyway. But uh, earlier this week, we sent Ben Valsler to meet Gillian Fraser, who's at the Department of Pathology at Cambridge University, to get the lowdown on bacteria. For kitchen science this week, we decided we'd do something a little different. So really, it's not kitchen science as much as it is kitchen and toilet science. And I'm afraid this is one that you can't do at home. 
But what we've decided to do is see if there's any truth in the story that there's more bacteria on your kitchen work surface than there is on your toilet seat. So I met up with Cambridge University bacteriologist Gillian Fraser to see how we could test this out. So when we met a few days ago in a a rather nice toilet, what we planned to do was to take some samples from the toilet seat and we were then going to inoculate these samples onto some growth media that would allow us to, to grow the bacteria that were present on the toilet seat. So we took two swabs, uh, which are rather like a long cotton wool bud, and we rubbed one over a toilet seat and one over a kitchen work surface. And then by inoculate, you mean to rub the swab over some agar in a little dish and see what grows on it. Yeah, so some of the bacteria picked up on the swab would definitely um, be able to grow in this media. As you can see, if we look at the plates, we've got lots of individual bacterial colonies growing. So what exactly are bacteria? Well, bacteria are single-celled organisms and they're in our environment everywhere. They're pretty ubiquitous. Many bacteria are found on plants and on animals and, of course, you and me. I've heard that, actually, there's more bacterial cells inside me than there are human cells. How does that happen? Why am I not ill? That's true. We, We actually carry many bacteria on our skin surfaces, also um, in our guts, there are a huge number of bacteria and these bacteria live together with us as commensals. They don't cause us under normal circumstances any damage. In fact, they're very good for us and they can actually protect us from bacteria that cause disease. So by colonising our surfaces, they can prevent the bad bacteria from being able to stick to those surfaces and grow. The bacteria that cause disease are actually quite similar in many respects to the good bacteria. However, these bad bacteria have acquired traits that enable them to damage the cells in our body to, for example, release nutrients from our cells that can help the disease-causing bacteria to grow. So, for example, they might produce a toxin that lyses the cells in our bodies. So the good bacteria has evolved to get the nutrients it needs through working with us, but the bad bacteria gets the nutrients it needs by taking advantage of ourselves and breaking them up and taking what we have. That's exactly right. And another difference is that our body normally will not raise an immune response. They will not try and kill off the good bacteria normally associated with us. But when a new bacteria, a pathogenic or disease bacterium comes along, the body will try and clear it by generating antibodies and such like. And this immune response that's generated is also a way that damage is indirectly caused during a bacterial infection. So do antibiotics kill off all bacteria regardless of whether they're good or bad? Well, some antibiotics have quite a specific target range of bacteria that they'll kill, but other antibiotics, broad-spectrum antibiotics, can kill off a wide range of different bacteria. And these can include the good bacteria. And in the news recently, you might have seen there's an increasing problem with an organism called Clostridium difficile, also known as C. diff, which can gain a foothold in your gut after prolonged antibiotic treatment has killed off your normal gut bacteria. Which, of course, is very dangerous for people who are already, for example, elderly or frail or if they're already ill anyway. 
Yes, that's right. But that's not the only problem with prolonged antibiotic use and widespread antibiotic use. What we also see is that pathogenic bacteria can become resistant to antibiotics. And this, of course, is a huge problem. Everybody's heard about methicillin-resistant Staphylococcus aureus. So MRSA. That's right. A big problem now in hospitals. So the plates that we've got here, we have one from our kitchen and one from the toilet seat. And I can see from here that one of them clearly has a lot more sort of speckled patches on it than the other one. The other one looks fairly clean, really. Which one's which? So the one with lots of bacterial colonies on it came from, not surprisingly, the toilet seat. And it looks like there's roughly about five times as many bacterial colonies have grown up on this plate compared to the plate where we inoculated the sample from the kitchen. Can we look a bit further into this and see what sorts of bacteria we're getting? Yeah, so what I was able to do was to take some of the individual colonies from these plates and I was then able to subculture them, which means to plate them out again, onto different types of growth media that can select for the bacteria that would normally survive within your gastrointestinal tract, so in your um, intestines. Both of them have an important ingredient, bile salts, and those would normally kill most bacteria, except things like E. coli, which is normally found in your gut, or pathogens like Salmonella or Shigella. The plate you've used for the original cultures is just a pale yellow colour. I think most people will have seen agar plates that looks like that. One is sort of a, almost a tobacco stain, dark orange, whereas the other one's quite a, a rich green. Are these colours there to tell you anything, or is that just the colour they are? No, they actually tell us something. So the thing that gives the plates the the different colours are pH indicators. Now, the reason we put these pH indicators in is to tell whether the bacteria can use certain sugars that are in the plates as foods because this can allow us to differentiate, to tell apart different kinds of bacteria. So E. coli would give you lovely dark red colonies, whereas Salmonella would give you pale yellow to orange colonies. As you can see from our Lucite sample, colonies have grown up on our selective agar, so we know that probably we've got some enteric bacteria in here. And we also know by looking at the colour the pH indicator has gone, so what colour the colonies are, that these bacteria don't ferment lactose. So we know they're not E. coli, we know they're not enterococci or enterobacteria, which are normally found in your gut. They could be something like salmonella or something like shigella, which can both give you diarrhoea. So there you go. In our tests, we found much more bacteria on a toilet seat than we did on a kitchen work surface, and even some indication that the bacteria that were there could survive inside your intestines. Kitchen Science will be back to normal next week with an experiment that you can try out at home. Until then, though, my thanks to Gillian Fraser, and goodbye from me. Yeah, that'll make you think twice about walking out of the toilet and not washing your hands, won't it? That was Ben Valsler talking with Gillian Fraser from the Department of Pathology at Cambridge University. And unfortunately, they found on the toilet seat there were bugs like Salmonella and Shigella, potentially. And of course, they will make you very, very ill. So this urban myth that says that you are safer eating your lunch off a loo seat rather than off your kitchen table is probably just that, an urban myth. But we will say it's only one toilet seat that we looked at. And I reckon, Helen, I reckon it was from a woman's toilet. 
Excuse me, what do you mean? Well, no, it can't be men's toilet because if it was in the men's, men would have peed all over the floor uh, anyway or peed all over the seat and washed them off. I always so think men's toilets toilet. are far more disgusting than girls' toilets. But anyway, if you've been following our forum online, you might have seen that we put up the pictures of the agar plates that we did in the Kitchen Science this week and we put up a vote to see who thought which one was which and you were all wrong, pretty much. Only 11% of you got it right and you thought the one with more bugs was the one from the kitchen table. So no, I'm afraid we have shattered that myth, I think. And uh, coming up on The Naked Scientist this week, in a second we'll be talking to Dr Ali Ashby from Cambridge University. She works on fungi and we'll be finding out how they actually contribute both to health and disease, not just to humans, but to plants as well. Sorting out the sparks from the quarks, The Naked Scientists. So Naked Scientists, keep your emails coming in, chris at nakedscientist.com. We've heard about bacteria, we've heard about uh, viruses, but now we're going to hear about another component of the microbiological world, which is, of course... Fungi. And Ali Ashby's with us from Cambridge University. Hi, Ali. Now, what actually is a fungus? Because how does it differ from the bacteria we've heard about and the viruses? Well, fungi are fascinating organisms. They, they're incredibly diverse. I mean, they range in size from a few microns, which is what you'd expect a bacterium to be, um, uh, right up to being one of the largest organisms uh, on this planet. Uh, and so they're, they're incredibly diverse. They diverged from uh, bacteria, obviously, very early on. Um, they are not plants, they're not animals, but they're their own kingdom. Are they um, more specialised than bacteria? Are they, are they more like us than bacterial cells? They are, are certainly more like us, yes. They have more things in common with animal cells, um, many, many things uh, in common. Um, and, uh, and so, yes, I would say that, uh, that they are more, more similar to, to us. They, they, clearly, they clearly shared a common ancestor early on in evolutionary time. So if you look at the world around us, what, what do fungi contribute to it? What's their, their big role? I think the biggest role that fungi have to play is they're one of the primary decomposers. So they go along and they break down woody lignin and uh, without them we would have lots and lots of trees hanging around and virtually no soil and therefore no plants growing. So they're incredibly important for that reason. One of the other things that they do, and maybe people don't realise this, but just about every plant in your garden has a fungal association, whether it be an association with the roots, um, those are mycorrhizal associations and they're mutualistic, both the fungus and the plant benefit from that interaction, or they could be endophytic fungi, um, which tend to grow in the leaves of plants and don't cause any visible signs of, of infection or disease, yet are beneficial in that they um, prevent Prevent, um, prevent animals from, from, from eating the leaves, for example, and, and also offer some resistance to, uh, to other microbes. So what are they doing in the roots? Because you mentioned there's this clever relationship between fungus and a plant's root. So what's going on there? What's happening? Well, basically what's happening is the root structure of a plant can only extend so far into the soil. Now, without fungi, and basically what happens, there are several different types of mycorrhizal fungi that are endophytic, uh, that, that are sort of the endomycorrhizal fungi and the ectomycorrhizal fungi. Now, the endomycorrhizal fungi um, associate very closely with the roots of a plant. They actually get inside um, the plant, uh, the outer plant, uh, uh, the surface of the plant, and they extend their hyphae much, much further than the roots of a plant. So it's and almost they, like a, a system of roots 
on top of roots. That's right. And it basically what they do is they sequester nutrients from the soil, nutrients that the plants are finding hard to get hold of, things like phosphorus and zinc. And um, in return, what the plant gives are plant photosynthates. So uh, they get fed, they get the sugars um, that result from photosynthesis. And so, so it's, a, it's a mutualistic sorry. interaction. So if I was to sort of zoom in on a fungus, what would it actually look like? Is, is this sort of one, not like one little cell that you see with a bacteria? Well, no, but if you could imagine the London Underground, it's a little bit like that. It's a vast network, uh, a cotton wool network of hyphae, um, hollow tunnels, if you like, a little bit like the, the London Underground. And they extend out into the substratum and, 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 uh, and, and spread like that. They're heterotrophs, so fungi-like animals, um, they... And not like plants, in that plants can actually um, make their own food from energy, external sources of energy. Fungi can't do that, just like us. They have to actually utilise pre-made organic material. So they actually, what they do is they, they send out their hyphae, they produce special proteins called enzymes which are released into the, into the, uh, in, into the food source. They digest that and then they absorb the nutrients back into the into the sort of hollow um, cotton wool hyphal strands. You mentioned that they're actually one of the largest organisms on Earth. So how big's big then? Well, one of the I think our malaria um, gallica um, over in, in in the states in in Oregon. I think the latest measurement on that was something like three point six miles. So the the hyphal, just one organism. Just one organism. That's right. And so the mycelium has actually spread an incredible distance. And so it could arguably be the largest organism on this planet. And just very briefly, Ali, um, we, we now see fungi as a useful food source, not just for, for breaking down wood and things, but also for us to eat and turn into marmite and things like that. That's right. I mean, in the food industry, you'd be absolutely amazed. And next time you go to the supermarket, just look at what you've got in your shopping baskets because fungi um, help in the production of bread, uh, wine, beer, uh, marmite, as you said, soya sauce, cheeses, um, and probably one of the most important things as far as my kids are concerned, chocolate. Um, fungi play a, an incredible role, both in uh, the way that the chocolate plant grows and also the way that um, the chocolate flavour is, is, is imparted. Basically, the fungal fermentation um, makes the chocolate taste good. So it's not just making the plant grow well, it's, or, or is it that the fungus is putting something no, into the no, plant? No, it's, it's different fungi. The, the endomycorrhizal fungi help uh, with the root structure of, uh, of, 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 the, of, the, of the chocolate tree um, and allow that tree to grow in the tropics. Um, then once, um, once the flowers develop and they're, and, and they're pollinated by mites, the cocoa pods develop, um, the cocoa pods are picked, and within those pods there are about 50 seeds, and it's the seeds that you actually need um, to make chocolate. Now, surrounding the seeds, there's a mucilage, and basically what fungi do is they break down that mucilage and um, produce ethyl alcohol that are then um, other um, bacteria and other fungi that come in and, and play a role. And, and basically, um, the early stages where you're getting this breakdown, um, it's mainly lactic acid, it's broken down to ethyl alcohol, you actually get um, the flavour of the chocolate coming out. 
I can almost taste it now. That's Ali Ashby from Cambridge University. Thanks, Ali. Uh, we've got Sam, who is apparently in a pub, uh, enjoying the products of another kind of fungus, actually a yeast, that's Saccharomyces cerevisiae, and he wants to know actually about something that Tim works on. Hi, Sam. Yeah, hi there. Um, What's your question? Yeah, my question was about the, the NOAA viruses you were talking about and whether there was... Uh, um, whether they display any seasonality at all. They were compared to um, influenza viruses, and I wondered if there was any... Um, and influenza viruses obviously have a, a large seasonal component. I wondered if that was the same for the noroviruses. Very good question. Noroviruses used to be called winter vomiting disease because they mainly occurred in the winter. Interestingly, influenza is called influenza because of influenza de Fredo, the influence of the cold. That's how the Italians realised flu was about. The only time you get noroviruses significantly in the summer months is when you get a new virus strain from an RNA, RNA mutation and then that can cause summer infections. More usually you get them um, between October and March. You're quite right. Good question. Do you want to go at the quiz? Oh, yeah, sure. OK. Each degree of longitude on the Earth is equivalent to a time difference of ten minutes. Fact or fiction, Sam? Um, I'm just trying to do the math. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, I'll say fact. I'm afraid it's actually four minutes. Do you want me to do the maths? (laughs) Have we got time? 24 hours in a day, 60 minutes in an hour, meaning there are 24 times 60, which is 1,440 minutes in a day. There are 360 degrees in a circle. Divide the two together and you get four. Four minutes. You've got to get the next one correct to to stay in the game, basically. A day on the moon lasts 28 times longer than a day on Earth, Sam. Fact or fiction? Uh, Fiction. Oh dear, I'm afraid not. The moon is spinning more slowly than the Earth. It takes 28 and a half days to complete one revolution. Thanks for your question, Sam. It's a great question. Thank you. Good having you on the programme. Pleasure. Thank you. Peter is in Carbrook and he reckons he knows the answer to our teaser. Hello, Peter. Hello, Chris. What have you calculated? Well, I haven't calculated anything, mate. Every week I get my boys to um, to sort of try and help me out. I've got three sons, and, and then we text him what we think is a carefully calculated answer. And this <laughs> week they said, you're on your own, Dad. So I just guessed at 500,000. Ooh, now, hang on. What I'm going to do is make Helen actually go through the calculation because she's done the hard work and done the sums, and we'll see if you're right. So you stay there just a second, all right? Hi, Helen. Okay, good. You, you go for it. Okay, so so bear with me. What we have is the base, based on the area of a pin head, of a millimetre, a square millimetre and a half, one and a half square millimetres. Then the area of the widest point of our E. coli, we're going to take the length and times it by the diameter, uh, and we come up with 1.6 picometers, which is 1.6 times 10 to the minus 12. There's a lot lot of zeros before that 1.6 and then divide the area of your pinhead by the area of bacterium and we come up with mm, 93750000 or just around about a million so we think yes you're pretty close with 500,000 so fantastic yes so it's definitely the closest that we've had, so we've, had. we've got two prizes uh, you could pick from so as you're the first person do you want the periodic table of elements the rather fun and funky wrap up of what's in the world around us or would you like a copy of naked science which is my book I'd like your book, please. Okie dokie, there's one in the post to you. Thank you very much indeed. Great having you on the programme. I think my answer was a lot easier than your young ladies. Oh, I don't know, I wouldn't say that. <laughs> it, was, it was a good guess, though. You were, you were spot on. Cheers, mate. Thank you. 
Bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. Okay, I've got an email here from Ingrid. Ingrid is in Seattle at the University of Washington Department of Microbiology. She says, Dear Dr. Chris, first of all, I want to tell you and the staff at The Naked Scientist that I love your show. I listen to it whilst I'm doing lab work. I'm a graduate student in microbiology. Thanks, Ingrid. Uh, she says, I'm writing in response to a caller's question in this week's Q&A show in which bacterial movement along a concentration gradient, or chemotaxis, was discussed. You mentioned that the bacterium tastes on what side of the cell the nutrients are in a higher concentration and then it swims in that direction. It is true that the bacteria detect a concentration of nutrients and they tend to swim towards the higher concentrations, but the way that you said the bug senses the gradient wasn't the whole story. It cannot detect a gradient on one side of the cell compared to the other because the bacterium is very small. Instead, the bacterium measures the concentration of nutrients in its environment and compares that to the concentration an instant ago while it was swimming, which tells the bug if it's going up or down a concentration gradient. If it's swimming up the gradient, that's good for the bug, then it will prefer to continue in that direction. If not, then it tries to change direction or randomly picks a new direction and retests for nutrients. In this way, the microorganism senses a nutrient gradient temporarily, but not spatially. Thank you very much for a fantastic podcast. I learn a huge amount from your show. Keep up the good work. Ingrid. So thank you for that, Ingrid, uh, for clarifying that for us. Well, that's pretty much all we've got time for for this week. But next time, instead of looking down a microscope, we're going to be looking up into the atmosphere. And that's because John Grattan will be on the line from Aberystwyth to tell us about volcanoes and what's said to be the biggest atmospheric pollution event in history. We'll also be hearing from Jonathan Shanklin. He's from the British Antarctic Survey. He discovered 20 years ago the hole in the ozone layer, and he'll be updating us on the current status of the ozone layer and how that's unfolding. And also, you may have heard of a ship in a bottle, but in Kitchen Science next week, Ben Valsler and Dave Ansell will be finding out how you can make a weather system in a bottle. What you're going to need, if you want to do it at home that is, is an empty plastic bottle, a drop of water and a match. Now for more cutting edge science in the meantime, do check out the Nature Podcast, which we also make. That's at nature.com forward slash nature forward slash podcast. And all it remains for me to say is, if you can spare five seconds, do join us on our Naked Scientist discussion forum at nakedscientist.com forward slash forum. Lots of people from all around the world discussing their interest in science. It'd be lovely to have you there too. I'd also like to say a very big thank you to everyone who's helped us with this week's show. Thank you to our guests, Scott Manalis at the beginning, Tim Riggett, Ali Ashby, Gillian Fraser, and also to our production team, Petro Minch and Ben Valsler. If you have any science questions for us in the meantime, or you just want to say hi, we love hearing from you, drop me a line, chris at nakedscientist.com. Until then, goodbye. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.